Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to The Bird Show. I'm Dr. Crow, and today my co-host is Skittles, the green cheek conure. We're here today to talk about one of my favorite birds in the entire world. They're majestic, they're resplendent, they are beautiful, and they are called Quetzals. There are six species of Quetzals. They're found in forests, especially in humid highlands. They're considered to be neotropical except for one species, the eared Quetzal. The eared Quetzal is actually found a little further north. It's found in Mexico and even a few areas of the southernmost United States. All Quetzals are pretty big. They're members of the Trogon bird family. They're all measuring over at least 13 inches in length, and some are even twice that, like two feet long if you include their beautiful plumes in their tail feathers. That is the signature of the Quetzal's look. It actually takes the males up to three years just to grow them. They remind me of, um, I don't know if you remember that Dr. Seuss story, Gertrude McFuzz. Gertrude McFuzz was never satisfied with how long her tail was. So she ate these berries and they grew and they grew. And suddenly, before she even knew, her tail was ginormous and she couldn't fly. Suddenly, Gertrude McFuzz discovered why she was already a beautiful bird with the tail that she had. And from that day forward, for that tail, she was clapped. So Quetzals, uh, since they do live in forest canopies, they tend to have these large eyes and their plumage, as I mentioned, is gorgeous. It is iridescent green. The uh, resplendent Quetzal is probably the best known Quetzal. They actually have this red breast similar to how Skittles here does. Despite how gorgeous and bright their colors are, they're very well camouflaged, which is a little counterintuitive, but they're notoriously hard to spot, believe it or not, being such majestic birds. Quetzals feed on fruits, berries, insects, and small vertebrates, such as frogs, but they mainly eat fruit. They are strongly sexually dimorphic, so the males are the ones that have those really, really long tail feathers. The females are also quite colorful, but they do tend to have gray or brown in their plumage. Quetzals are actually largely solitary birds. They don't really travel in large flocks or anything like that. They tend to not really make many calls either when they're in the rainforest, so they're sort of thought of as stoic, quiet, so although they're largely solitary, they do get together, of course, for breeding season. Both parents take turns incubating the eggs. They tend to do uh, one or two clutches per year. Sometimes they don't have the greatest success rate. I read one statistic that said the resplendent Quetzal had up to 70% failure, but they are persistent and they will try again if they can in the same nesting season. They do build their nests in hollowed out logs. So they'll either find a space that's already been hollowed out by like a woodpecker or a different type of bird or insect. Or if it comes down to it, they have been known to hollow them out themselves using their beaks. Baby quetzals fledge somewhere around three weeks, which to me seems pretty young. But uh, yeah, what do you think, Skittles? She's ready to fledge too. I think she wants to go fly somewhere. <laughs> so that's an overview about quetzals. Let's move on to some bird tales. Bird tales. So first I'm going to tell you the story about the Quetzal's name. 
The name Quetzal comes from the Natul word Quetzali, which means a large, brilliant tail feather. And I think you can see why. The Natul root of that word Quetz means to stand up. Natul is the language that was spoken by the Aztecs as early as the 7th century. And that shows you how long we've been talking about Quetzals and their beautiful plumage as a human species. In several Mesoamerican languages, Quetzal can also mean precious or sacred. The resplendent Quetzal, which is by far the most well-studied, is considered to be divine, and it's associated with the snake god. So this is in the Aztec and Mayan cultures. Quetzalcoatl was the snake god in pre-Columbian Mesoamerican civilizations. The iridescent green feathers of the Quetzal are also symbolic of spring growth. And they were venerated by the ancient Aztecs and Mayans who viewed the Quetzal as a god of air and a symbol of goodness and light. A lot like you, Skittles. You can relate, huh? The Maya also viewed the Quetzal as symbolic of wealth. They actually used the feathers as kind of a form of currency, and they would put them in their headdresses as well, particularly for royalty and nobility. This was to symbolize their closeness to Quetzalcoatl. And interestingly, at the time, it was a crime to kill Quetzals. So when they would harvest the feathers for the headdresses, they would only capture them and then they would release them. They wouldn't kill the birds, which makes sense because if you are using the feathers as a form of currency, I think it would kind of be in your best interest, even though it takes a full three years to grow a new set, to set the birds free to ensure your future supply. So I think that that's pretty smart when it comes down to ecological conservation and the sustainability of your finances. At one point in time, the feathers were considered to be more valuable than gold. So perhaps it's no wonder that the Quetzal is the name of the currency in Guatemala. And I looked it up recently. It's just about seven and a half Quetzals for every one US dollar, in case you're wanting to go to Guatemala. The resplendent Quetzal is the national bird of Guatemala. And it's so revered there that it's featured prominently on the country's flag. So here's another bird tale for you. And this one is about the legend of how the Quetzal got its red breast. You may remember a few episodes ago, I think Skittles was with me. We were talking about how robins got their red breasts. Well, it's a really fascinating story with a lot of twists and turns as to how the Quetzal got hers. Legend has it, there was a local hero, Takun Uman, he was a prince and warrior of the Quiche, a Mayan group around the time of the Spanish conquest of the region. He had a Quetzal as his Nahul, which is what they referred to as their spirit animal. Often um, when he would be in battle, there would be a Quetzal scene flying around. So the Quiche had managed by that time to repel several attacks from the Spanish army. This was later in the Spanish conquest, time-wise, relatively speaking. Even though the Spanish outmatched them by leaps and bounds in terms of their technology and their weaponry, the Spanish had not only horses and cavalry, but they also had armor, they had guns. And this is opposed to the Mayas, who had just spears and had to travel on foot. Despite this, the Quiche had managed to defeat the Spanish multiple times. According to this legend, 
conquistador Pedro de Alvarado fought against Tecunumán. As they fought, of course, there was the Quetzal flying high overhead. On the first strike, Tecunumán disabled Pedro Alvarado's horse, and this is despite the fact that he was on foot, mind you, and he managed to disable the horse. Well, of course, there was a second horse, and so Alvarado remounted the horse, charged again, and on the second strike, managed to pierce Tecunumán's chest with a spear. Much like you're trying to pierce my shirt. Thank you, Skittles. Well, immediately, the Quetzal flew from the air down to the chest of Tecunumán, and dipped its feathers into the blood, so much as in the Robin story, the red breast was said to come from the blood of Jesus. In this case, the red on the breast of the Quetzal came from the warrior prince Tecun Uman's blood. Pretty poetic, huh, Skittles? It's quite the story. So another Mayan legend claims that the reason that the Quetzal is so silent now is because on that day, and before the Spanish conquest, the Quetzal would sing most beautifully, but she's fallen silent and will remain silent until the land can once again be truly free. So speaking of freedom, I think that this is one of the coolest myths or legends about the Quetzal, and that is that you cannot tame it, you cannot keep it in a cage, that the Quetzal would rather die than lose her freedom. According to legend, if you do manage to catch a Quetzal, well, first, if you manage to spot a Quetzal, then you manage to catch a Quetzal, she'll either break her own neck on the bars of the cage that you're confining her in, or I've also read where they'll just sort of languish away and die from a broken heart. Either way, uh, notoriously, you cannot tame or capture a Quetzal. And for that reason, Quetzals are revered as not only symbols of liberty, but also of freedom. I think a lot of us would like to think of ourselves as Quetzals, as people who would rather fight to every end rather than be captured or caged. So yeah, as far as bird tales go, that one is quite profound in my book. So that's enough for bird tales. Now let's move on to the flocking news. So before we begin today's flocking news article, a quick note about the conservation status of quetzals and in particular the resplendent quetzal. The resplendent quetzal is considered to be near threatened as far as its conservation status goes. There are an estimated 50,000 individuals still remaining in the wild, but the issue is distribution is not at all even. Most of those are found in cloud forest conservation areas in countries like Costa Rica. In places like Guatemala, unfortunately, uh, a lot of human conflict that's been going on since the 1980s has made such conservation efforts play second fiddle to the humanitarian crises that have been going on. Additionally, there's been a movement towards slash and burn agriculture, and particularly as the climate changes, um, it changes the patterns where people are trying to grow their food. So between human conflict and habitat loss, Uh, At one point, it was estimated that the resplendent quetzal, even though it is so revered as to be the national bird of Guatemala, was going to go extinct in the country by the year 2000. Fortunately, from everything I read, that hasn't happened. 
but it just demonstrates how precarious their situation is currently in terms of conservation in countries like Guatemala. So with that in mind, today's flocking news article is called Indigenous Women's Agroecology is Healing Guatemala's Landscape. And this was published January 29th, 2020 in Sojourners. So agroecological principles include things like rotational cropping, agroforestry, integrated crop and livestock systems, and the use of local varieties of plants in horticulture. So a quote from the article, since the 1980s, conflict and food insecurity has continued to rack the central highlands of Guatemala. They are part of the dry corridor that runs through Central America, making them historically vulnerable to drought. The highlands are also the heartland of the Maya Achi people who have inhabited the region since antiquity. Alvaro Fernandez Yamazares is an ethnoecologist at the Helsinki Institute of Sustainability Science who has conducted fieldwork in indigenous communities in Bolivia, Costa Rica, Kenya, and Madagascar. He says that there is a substantial amount of literature that has shown how traditional indigenous agriculture contributes to biodiversity conservation and sustainability in multiple ways. Traditional management practices can help to increase landscape biodiversity through the creation of habitat mosaics or to conserve crop diversity, he said. Similarly, many indigenous communities are limiting local levels of nitrogen pollution through a minimal use of chemical pesticides and fertilizers. So this is great news, and this is actually a women-led uh, movement that's going on in Guatemala, partly because due to all of the human-on-human -human conflict, a lot of the men and uh, even young men in the community are either gone fighting or have unfortunately died doing so, and so it's been left to the women to really carry a lot of these community-wide initiatives. So we think of places like Guatemala as solely tropical, and a lot of places in the country indeed are. This article, I think, highlights the fact that there is an area that is considered to be a dry corridor that is more susceptible to drought, which challenges the assumption that all of Guatemala is rainforest and that things like lower rainfall aren't going to be affecting them. It's worth noting that as the effects of climate change ramp up around the world, we're going to see different changes in rainfall pattern, etc. And that could really make places that are already susceptible to drought in an even more precarious situation, which is why it's so great that initiatives like this are happening where not only do they have more skills under their tool belt in terms of farming practices, but also it helps them with food stability. And once they have more stability in terms of food, then they can do other community building activities. So let's end today's episode with a bird of advice. A bird of advice. Today's bird of advice, it really builds off the observation that everything is so interconnected the fate of the resplendent Quetzal in Guatemala is tied not only to what we do with their natural habitats, but also to the fates of the Guatemalans who also call that place home. Conflict in human society can lead to lack of conservation for birds, and similarly, climate change and pressures of food instability can lead to unintended consequences like slash and burn agriculture, which threatens the habitat of countless species around the world. So how as a species can we begin to see our interconnectedness and not only that, but to break down some of the binaries 
that make us see things as false dichotomies. For example, do we have to pick food security or Quetzal habitat? The people in the article that I mentioned had been making nature corridors essentially by having more diversity in their agricultural practices. That was allowing for the Quetzals to have habitat and for them to have food security at the same time. I think too often in our culture we get stuck in thinking that something is either or. We can either save the natural environment or we can have a robust economy. We can either be as free as the Quetzal or we must be bound to a cage. I think that if we're able to see through dichotomy to the true plurality of everything that's going on around us, we'll see that there are more win-win situations around us than we know. As we saw in the Flocking News article, there's not only more matriarchal influence in the communities because a lot of women are leading these efforts, the Quetzals are having their habitat preserved by having more sustainable agricultural practices, and the other people that live in the community are having the benefit of a more stable future. I know the last couple episodes of The Bird Show have been a little bit heavy, uh, especially as we discuss a little bit more about what's going on in the world around. But again, this just goes to show how interconnected we all are. The choices that are made in one market in China can affect literally the day-to-day -day lives of people all around the globe. If there's a few things that we can keep in mind or maybe some silver linings or maybe some advice that we can move forward with after everything is said and done, it's that the things that we do just to each other or that we do just to the land in terms of human interests don't have an effect on only us. And it's important that we remember that moving forward that no person is an island, no nation is an island, and no species is an island. The way that we interact with the species around us, including green cheek conures, including resplendent quetzals, really has a ripple effect upon all of the web of life, honestly. So that's today's bird of advice. I hope that you enjoyed today's bird show. Uh, just a reminder that if you do enjoy the show and you want to find a new way to support us, you can go to the Carullo Center for Nonviolence and donate to the sanctuary that they've got going on or even just uh, make a donation in general. That's www.carulos.org. As always, thank you so much for joining us here at The Bird Show. We'll see you next week, and I hope until then that you find a few ways to have a flocking good time. Dr. Crow's bird show.